0: Well, did anybody recognize that piece of music? Can anyone name it or who may have heard it before or are familiar with it? Well, in 1977, um, NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 to explore the galaxy. And a golden record called the Sounds of Earth were affixed on each one of the twin spacecrafts. And uh, NASA was essentially sending a message from Earth out into space communicating something about the human condition to whoever it is that might ever hear it out there. And what's interesting about this golden record was it contained two things. It contained a human heartbeat, and then it contained the music that you just heard. 30 years after the launch of these two spacecrafts, uh, Anna Druryan, who served as the creative director for the project, she was reflecting on why she chose that piece of music to send into space. And this is what she said in an interview. She said, well, as soon as my colleague said, this message is going to last a thousand million years, I thought of a piece by Beethoven from Opus 130, a great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin when he was putting it together, the word sensuqt which is a German word meaning longing. He wrote the word longing in the margin of that song. And she said part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing we feel. It's as if NASA's scientists were saying to the rest of the universe, this is who and what we are as human beings. We are creatures of great longing. And the question I want to ask us tonight as we reflect together upon this passage that was read for us a moment ago from Genesis chapter 3 is, what are we longing for? What are we longing for as human creatures created in the image of God, born into the world that is? We're going to consider that question as we step into Genesis chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to the passage our friend Becky read for us a moment ago, Genesis chapter 3. We find ourselves looking at the final three verses of this chapter. And in so doing, we're wrapping up our series titled Origins. We were going to study the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. where that study is coming to a close tonight as we kind of land the plane here in verses 22 through 24. Now, we'll likely come back to the book of Genesis seasonally over the course of the next couple of years and just kind of work our way through the, the, the whole book over the course of the next two years. But for now, we're going we're to pause this study and draw it to a close at this point. And what is interesting is at the end of this chapter, human beings are banished from Eden. They are exiled from immediate fellowship with God. The place that God designed to... Uh, For them so that he might walk with them and they might enjoy him and be provided for by him. That they are at the end of Genesis chapter 3 as a result of sin exiled from Eden. They are alienated from paradise. And what you're going to notice as we look at these three verses is that there are three images that surface in these verses. And each one of these images uh, sheds light on different aspects of our longings about what it means to be a creature born outside of Eden and what it is we're longing for as we are journeying through the world that is. Three images that I think if you and I can see well tonight and if we can consider together uh, these three images, after we look at them, we're going to be seeing the cross, Lord willing, in a... In a wonderfully fresh way. My goal tonight is for each and every heart in this room to be warmed by the cross of Christ. But before we get there, we have to consider these three images that pop up in this passage. These images consist of a tree. The image consists of a curse. And the image consists of a sword. Let's look at that first image here in verse 22. The image of a tree. Verse 22, the Lord is talking to Adam and he's about to exile them from Eden. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden separating him from the tree of life, not wanting him to eat and perpetuate this existence in which he finds himself in as a sinner who's now rebelled against his God. So there's exile here. And verse 22 represents a sadly ironic statement where God is actually restating what the serpent slithered up and whispered into Eve's ears earlier in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. You let your eyes pop up your page of your Bible, or you turn back one page. You'll see what the serpent said to Eve. He tells her, "For God knows that when you eat of it—that is, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil—when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Then, when you step into verse twenty-two, God affirms that that's just gone down, and it's not a good thing. They've partaken of the knowledge. The from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it has brought them into a condition that God did not intend for them to be in. And there are two ways to kind of be like God and knowing good and evil. There are two ways in which Adam and Eve could have learned the knowledge of good and evil. They could have trusted God's word, refrained from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and trusting God and allowing him to provide for them, allowing him to nurture them as they grow together and enjoy God there in the Eden. They could have trusted God's word and and obeyed God's word, and they would have grown in knowledge, they would have grown in obedience, they would have grown in faith. The other way, which is the way Adam and Eve took to kind of usurp that process, wanting to speed things up and go after this forbidden fruit, they take it, they eat it, and they actually experience the effects of sin in a fallen world so that their knowledge of uh, good and evil is now uh, like God's, so to speak. A guy by the name of Timothy Keller would compare this passage and the two ways that we can know about the knowledge of good and evil with the two ways a person might learn about the bubonic plague, saying a person can learn about the bubonic plague by studying about it. You can read it. You can learn how to treat it. You can learn how to avoid it. You can study it and learn about it in that sense, or you can contract that disease and learn about it that way. You can experience its effects. This is essentially what's going down in verse 22 where God is speaking with this sad, ironic, making this sad, ironic statement that man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But then he goes on and says that now unless he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, I have to separate them from this tree. He doesn't want them to reach out for this tree. Why is that? Because he doesn't want... Adam and Eve to continue on in sin as sinners forever and ever and ever. So he separates them from the tree of life. But what we find with this image that the, as we think about this tree, that as we've been exiled from Eden, there are still some insatiable longings that characterize our lives in a fallen world. That we are all reaching out towards the tree of life. We all want whatever the tree of life might offer us. And there are a couple of things, a couple of ways to think about the tree of life. One is there's an emphasis here on duration, the emphasis on eternity or eternal life. You might think, okay, well, there there is a longing within human beings to, to last. We want to be about things that last. We want our lives to last. This is why we do so many things that we do with with medicine and technology and exercise and dieting. This is why we apply cosmetics to our bodies to keep our bodies from uh, displaying the effects of entropy. When our bodies begin to age and break down, we try to curb that as much as we can, as aggressively as we can, because there's this longing within us to last. It's this insatiable longing that we feel. This is why throughout the course of human history, myths have uh, arisen about the fountain of youth and trying to find the fountain of youth so that human beings might last in some way, shape, or form. But it's not enough just to refer to this longing as a longing to last because the tree of life, although it does speak about duration, it speaks about something a lot deeper than that. All throughout the scriptures, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about a life that lasts forever. It's talking about a certain quality of life, a life that can flourish, a life that can be enjoyed and thriving in ways that God intended human beings to thrive. That's how eternal life is defined all throughout scripture. It involves duration, but more than that, it involves a flourishing, a quality of life and And so you want to think about how in Genesis chapter 1, God created Adam and Eve in his image. And by creating them in his image, he wired them with certain appetites, certain desires that God intended to fulfill and to satisfy for them. But the moment they were exiled for E from Eden, all of a sudden, those longings that God put within them, those longings to be known, those longings to grow in knowledge, those longings to explore beauty and creativity and purpose and passion, the longing to engage in relationships with other people and to exercise dominion over the earth, those longings have now been twisted they 've now been inverted they 've been flipped upside down, so that outside of Eden these longings are still a part of the human condition. But what goes down within all of us is we tend to, we seek to satisfy these longings in people and places and things other than our Creator. These longings for Eden that manifest themselves in a myriad of ways in our lives over the course of our our days. When I was a kid, I used to spend at least two weeks a summer visiting my grandparents. My parents would send me off about two and a half hours to spend these two weeks every summer with my grandparents. And, and it was a tough thing for me as a kid because I always, it never failed, I always got excruciatingly homesick. I would long for home every time I would visit my grandma and my grandpa. I would long for home because I missed my Nintendo, right? Mom wouldn't let me bring that there. And so I missed my Nintendo. I, I missed my friends who lived next door who I could play ball with every day. And, But more than Nintendos and friends, what I really missed was my mom and dad. My homesickness would just wreck me because for some reason I feared never seeing my mom and my dad again. Well, there was one summer where my homesickness was particularly intense. And so I got on the phone. I called my dad. I said, Dad, I can't stay here anymore. You got to come get me. And I forced my dad to drive about two and a half hours to grandma's house to pick me up and to bring me home. But as I was waiting for him to come and get me, I was so disoriented by my homesickness. I was so eager for him to come get me. I wanted to go home. I longed for home and I longed for him. I was sitting in the living room and the moment a man walked through the front door of grandma's house, I ran straight to him and I wrapped my arms around his legs and I nestled my face into his stomach and I squeezed him with everything that I was. And, and the next thing I know, this awkward kind of, pat on the top of my head starts to happen and kind of shakes me out of what's going on and I look up and, I'm, and I see an imposter. It's not my dad. It, it's actually my dad's twin brother, my, my uncle. And my dad, he, he, I mean, my uncle never had children of his own. He didn't spend a lot of time with kids and so he didn't know how to handle an emotional kid like me in that moment, so he just kind of awkwardly patted me on my head and, and lever, pried my arms out off of him and pushed me back to grandmother. But what was happening in that moment? I was so disoriented in my homesickness that I ran to the first person who walked through the door. I was so disoriented by my homesickness that I found myself hugging an imposter. And I'm wondering if our insatiable longings, life outside of Eden, I'm wondering if our desire to go home and be with our God has so disoriented us that we find ourselves so often hugging imposters. There was a guy by the name of of Bruce Marshall who wrote a novel called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And in this novel, he wrote a line that has stuck with me ever since I first read it. And this is what he said. A most provocative statement, you know, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously searching for God. The young man who's ringing the bell at the brothel is unconsciously searching for God. He's saying he, that person, that young man is hugging an imposter. He's going to a brothel, not just in search for sex. He's going to a brothel in search for something far deeper. There's a guy by the name of Peter Kraft who took that book and wrote an analysis on, on that statement. And this is what he said. And I think he's right on track with, his, with what he what says about it. Peter Kraft would write this. I think a secularist has only one substitute for God left. Only one experience in a desacralized world that still gives him something like the mystical, self-transcending thrill of ecstasy that God designed all souls to have forever and to long for until they have it. That experience has to be sex. We're designed for more than happiness. We're designed for joy. He would say that Thomas Aquinas writes with simple logic, man cannot live without joy. That is why one deprived of true spiritual joys must spill over to carnal pleasures. Drugs and alcohol are attractive but, they claim to f- they, but they, because they claim to feed the same need. In fact, I think the addict is closer to the deepest truth than the mere moralist. He is looking for the very best thing in some of the very worst places. His demand for a state in which he transcends morality is very wrong, but it's also very right. For we are designed for something beyond morality, something in which morality will be transformed. We were designed for union with God. This is why C.S. Lewis would say, if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I'm longing for life with God in the Garden of Eden. And so we want to consider how the tree cues us into this, in these insatiable longings. And we want to be cognizant of the fact that our disorientation often drives us into the arms of imposters. So let me ask you, is there anyone that you, or any person, place, or thing right now that you are hugging that's an imposter? Any person, place, or thing that you are looking to do for you what God himself desires to do for you? What he delights in being for you? Are you hugging an imposter in any aspect of your life right now? That's the first image of a tree. Now the second image we see is introduced in verse 23. Verse 23, we continue reading. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. It's an interesting phrase. He sent him out of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And with those words, God is reminding or or the writer is echoing the curse that God laid out to Adam earlier in verse 17. Again, let your eyes go up to verse 17 and listen to what is said there. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you, get this, return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So listen to what God is saying in verse 22. He's saying, you know, man is kicked out of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Echoing that curse, this ground from which man was taken and to which man will return. Do you you hear the cycle that's being played out in the curse? Man outside of Eden is going to work the ground from which he was taken and to which he will return. This cycle of self-centeredness, this cycle of self-service, this cycle of self that leads ultimately to death. Essentially what God is describing in the curse is man is going to go out outside of Eden and dig his own grave. He's going to live a self-centered, self-absorbed life. And a self-centered life is ultimately a self-defeating life. From the ground, You're going to work the ground from which you were taken and to which you will return. He's describing the essence of sin. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is a self-defeating way to live. I love the image that's painted in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. If you've ever read the book, if you've seen the movie, you know that readers in that first book, in that, I guess, seven book um, story, readers are introduced to what's called the mirror of Erised. And I don't know if you're familiar with the mirror of Erised, but Erised is simply the word desire spelt backwards. Uh, Rowling is a very clever writer, and so she put this in here, the mirror of Erised, which is desire spelled backwards, and the idea behind this mirror is that every person who stands in front of it and looks at the reflection in the mirror, they're going to see their deepest longings. They're going to see their deepest desires. And so the mirror can become a very dangerous and deadly thing. This is why Albus Dumbledore, the the great wizard, would warn Harry Potter, you know, men have wasted away before this mirror, entranced by what they have seen or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. So this mirror would trap people who can't stop looking into it. It would trap people who can't stop staring into it. And Dumbledore would later say in the story that most people who see their reflection in this mirror, they see themselves in one of two ways. They see themselves as immortal or they see themselves as incredibly rich. Now towards the end of the story, Dumbledore would actually use this mirror to hide an object known as the Philosopher's Stone. And the Philosopher's Stone is this powerful stone that could actually give a person the power or find the way to live forever. And Dumbledore knew how dangerous that could be for a self-centered person to find that type of object and to use it to live forever. You don't want a self-centered person to live forever. And so he put a a spell on the mirror and hiding the Philosopher's Stone in the mirror. And this is how he would explain it to Harry towards the end of the story. He says, you know, only one who wanted to find the stone, find it but not use it, would be able to get it. Only Only if you wanted it but not use it would you actually be able to get it. In other words, he's saying only a selfless person can get that stone and live forever. A self-centered person who's looking for it and wanting to use it just for themselves, that's a deadly thing. Dumbledore knew that it would be well hidden because a self-centered person could never look into the mirror and find that stone. A self-centered person would waste away staring at their delusions of grandeur in this this mirror reflecting back to them their self-defeating desires. See, the idea is that a self-centered life is a self-defeating life. Dumbledore knew that. But more than that, Jesus knew that. This is why when you get into the Gospels, you hear Jesus say things like, if anyone loves his life, he will destroy it. Then he goes on, "If only the one who hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Eternal life will elude the self-centered person. Eternal life eludes those who are self-centered and self-absorbed. Eternal life eludes those who live their lives all about them. The self-centered life is a self-defeating life. That's what Jesus is saying in John twelve twenty-five. The one who loves his life destroys it. And the one who hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. And when you get to the end of the story and of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you get to the end of that story and you find Harry in a situation where he actually finds the stone. He succeeds in looking into the mirror and locating the stone. And we learn that the reason he was able to do that is because he didn't want to use it for himself. He wasn't seeking to be self-centered in that moment. He wanted to help others who were in a tough spot. He wanted to help others who were in danger by the evil one whose name shall not be known, right? A self-centered life is a self-defeating life. Eternal life eludes those who who live in a self-centered fashion. And so this curse, this cursed labors, this self-centeredness that's being described in verse 23 also speaks to the human condition. But then you get to this third image I want to put before you. The first image of a tree, the second image of a curse, the third image you find in verse 24 is the image of a sword. The image of a sword. Look at verse 24. God drives out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he places the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice the emphasis. He puts this cherubim, this fiery angelic being, to guard the eastern entrance into the Garden of Eden. And this cherubim has a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, once mankind was exiled from Eden, there was no way to get back. It was now guarded. It was sealed. The entrance was covered. And there was no way back in. Every way, in every direction was being guarded by this angel with a flaming sword. Access to the tree of life is denied. Access to Eden is now guarded from every every direction. So when you get to the end of this passage, you find mankind in a situation that is self-inflicted. You find them in a situation that is very um, that they've brought upon themselves by disobeying God in Genesis chapter 3, and then they're kicked out of Eden, and they can't get back in. They're in a situation that they've caused. They're in a mess that they've made, and they can't fix it. They can't get back in to Eden. They can't get back in with God. A few years back, I was babysitting my nephew, Jabin, and he was pretty young at the time, maybe five or six, and... And I was watching a basketball game on TV, which when I do, I can get very, I can get tunnel vision and get distracted, and I can forget about any other responsibility I have. Well, this happened one day when, when I was watching this basketball game, and I realized I hadn't heard from Jabin in a while. I look up, and I'm looking around. I don't know where he is. So I get off the couch, and I walk through the house, and I turn the corner in the kitchen. I, and I find Jabin in the kitchen, and what he has done, he's opened up the cabinet underneath the sink, and he's pulled out this family-sized bottle of dishwashing liquid. And he's peeled the top off this bottle, and he's squirted dishwashing liquid all over the floor. But not only did he squirt it all over the floor, he proceeded to get down on his hands and knees and just kind of rub it in and smear it around real good, creating a safety hazard in the kitchen. It was so slick. I walk in, and I almost fall, and, and Jabin's just hands deep in dishwashing liquid in, this, in my kitchen or in my sister's kitchen. But the moment he looks up and in the midst of his mess and he sees me, he gets afraid. So Jabin gets up, and he slips out of the kitchen, and he runs past me, and he sprints down the hallway. He jumps in his bedroom, and he slams the door shut behind him. And I'm sitting here looking at this mess, wondering, how do you clean stuff that's supposed to be used for cleaning? Can you clean cleaning stuff? And I'm just confused in a dilemma here. It's a no-win situation, knowing I'm going to have to clean it up. And as I'm trying to come up with a strategy for setting everything right in the kitchen, the next thing I know is I hear this noise. I hear this sound coming from Jabin's room. And I kind of follow the noise down the hallway and I get there and and I just hear this little hand banging against the doorknob. You see, Jabin's hands were so covered in that dishwashing liquid that when he shut that door, he couldn't get a grip on the doorknob. Every time he grabbed it, it would just slide right off. It would just slide right off. He was in a situation that he couldn't get out of because his hands were soiled. He was in a situation that he couldn't remedy himself. He needed someone with clean hands to come. He needed someone with a stronger grip to grab the knob. He needed someone with a much more powerful uh, bent to turn the knob of the door and open open it up so that he might get out. He needed a clean hand in that moment. Well, when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, You find Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind in a situation that they can't get out of. Their hands are soiled and they can't open the door to get back into Eden. There is now a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the entrance. Something needs to happen because we can't get back. And it's an interesting dynamic where you have this situation where every way is guarded back into the Garden of Eden. And, and I know that speaks into some of these warm ideas that we love to entertain in our culture today that suggests, you know, every way, can act, any way that a person takes in God's direction will ultimately lead them back to God. Every way leads to the same place. Every path takes uh, can take a person to whoever God is. It's a very popular idea. It's a very heartwarming idea in our culture. But according to verse 24, it's a false idea because in verse 24 we don't find that every way leads to God we actually find that no way actually leads to God there's no path a person can take to get back to Eden there's no path a person can follow to get back to God so what is needed then since you and I can't get back we are at God's mercy to come for us right We are at God's mercy to come and move in our direction. And this is essentially what goes down in the rest of the Bible. From Genesis chapter 4 on to the end of the book of Revelation, God is coming for us. He's moving towards us. He's not waiting for you to come to him because he knows you can't get to him. Your hands are too soiled by your sin. Your heart is too soiled by your self-centeredness. You need the love of a selfless God. You need the love of a graceful God to come to you and to set you right, to do for you ultimately what you cannot do for yourself. And this is the trajectory of the Bible's storyline. This is the trajectory of the gospel. I'll give you one example. When you get into the book of Exodus, The people of Israel are in a situation they can't get out of. They're suffering as slaves in Egypt, and and God decides to come to them. He comes for them. He sends Moses to deliver them from slavery, from bondage, to open the door so that they might walk out of Egypt. And then the rest of Exodus is about leading God, leading his people into the promised land. But there's one thing that would accompany the people of Israel on that journey called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was God's way of telling Israel, look, I want you to be with me and I want to be with you. But there's something that needs to happen between us to set things right. And so he creates this tabernacle to mediate their relationship with him. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, understand that the sword that the cherubim is holding, that sword represents divine justice. Swords all throughout scripture represent justice. They are instruments of justice. And so there's this idea in the tabernacle that says if God is going to be with his people and if his people are going to be with him and he's going to take them to the promised land, then justice needs to be paid. Justice needs to be served in some discernible and significant way. And so when you think about the tabernacle in, in Israel, every time the tabernacle would be set up, which was basically this mobile tent that God's presence dwelt in an intense kind of way and in what's called the Holy of Holies in this tabernacle, in this tent, the way it was set up was every time a person would walk into the tabernacle, the first thing you would come to or one of the first things you would come to is an altar and that altar would be the place where sacrifices were made to God sacrifices that God required so that a holy God might hang out with unholy people once again. And so this altar, this place of sacrifice would be a place that that a worshiper would come to. But then once you move past the altar, you would get to this veil, this large curtain that would separate the worshiper from the holy of holies. That's the innermost part or the heart of the tabernacle. And what's interesting about this veil is decorating the outside of it were a bunch of trees, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So every time somebody would approach the veil, they were reminded of what was lost, and they were reminded of what God really wants for human beings. They would see this garden on the veil, and, and then once a year, the great high priest would enter into the veil To offer up the sacrifice of atonement. And you know what was resting on the other side of the veil? A cherubim. An angel. A golden angel sitting atop the Ark of the Covenant. Sitting sitting, or living, present there. uh, Reminding again the great high priest of the cherubim that was standing at the entry point of the Garden of Eden. And what's interesting is that that entry point into the tabernacle was always facing east. The tabernacle in the book of Exodus was designed to echo Eden. It was designed to communicate to the people of Israel what God desired for them. That their longings to be at home with God, their longings to be who God originally created them to be, that longing can be satisfied because God has come to them and he's present with them in the tabernacle. So you have that imagery and then you continue to trace the storyline of the Bible and you get all the way this weird moment in John chapter 1 John chapter 1 verse 14 where we are told that there was a moment when God moved in our direction he came our way John chapter 1 verse 14 the word took on flesh God himself took on flesh he became human and it literally reads and tabernacled among us Since we can't get back to God, God came for us and he was setting all of that up with the tabernacle. He was setting all of that up with the temple that would later be built in Israel in the promised land. Ultimately driving to this moment when God would take on flesh and he would tabernacle among us. He would come for us and he would live a fully human life. Only his fully human life would be utterly distinct from any other human life that's ever lived in this world. As you journey with Jesus through the Gospels, what do you see but a man who is living an utterly other-oriented life? A life of love and service where he's deferring to his Father in every moment, obeying his Father. Where he's loving and serving those around him in an other-oriented way. What you find in Jesus is a man who's reflecting the image of God, knowing that God is a selfless God who is other-oriented. And when he created human beings in his image, he created us to be selfless people who were other-oriented, who were not self-centered. And since we ruined that with sin, Jesus came in to set all of that right. And so he lives a fully human life. He lives a fully other-oriented life, obeying the Father in every moment of every day. And then after living his life and approaching the end of his life, one night he would step into a garden. And he would go into this garden and he would commune with the Father. He would pray about what God had sent him into the world to do. And there are three times when Jesus would pray this prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Do you hear the difference in Gethsemane to uh, what Adam, what went down in Adam's life in Eden? In the Garden of Eden, Adam essentially said, my will be done. I'm going to take of this fruit of the knowledge of tree and evil. I'm going to do my thing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God sa- uh, Jesus says, Thy will be done. I'm here to do what you tell me to do. Utterly obedient. And what was God's will for Jesus? Well, God's will for Jesus was to drink that cup. This cup that represented divine justice. This cup that represented divine wrath. It was God's will for Jesus to go to a cross and do just that. And so we turn our attention to the cross and we consider how after Jesus prayed that prayer, he was later arrested and he was tried and he was sentenced to death. He was sentenced to die on a cross, a gruesome and horrific death. But what's interesting about the way John in his gospel tells the story is that before Jesus is actually nailed to a cross, what do some of the soldiers do? Well, they go and they grab a bunch of thorns and they twist those thorns into a crown And they place these thorns on top of Jesus' head. You think it's a coincidence that thorns were placed on Jesus' head? I think it's spirit-inspired genius as God is working out his plan, reinforcing the reality that everything Jesus has come into the world to do is designed to reverse the curse of sin. And so with these, this crown of thorns, John is connecting Jesus' death on the cross with the curse of sin that's described in Genesis chapter 3. And if you think that's a reach, Genesis, Galatians chapter 4, why do you think Paul writes this? Galatians chapter 4 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Cursed is a man who li- who is crucified or who dies on a tree. Jesus went to the cross to reverse the curse of sin. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, the sword of divine justice fell upon him. As Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, a penalty that he did not deserve to pay, but we deserve to pay, but he gracefully paid for us. And as Jesus is dying on the cross with this crown of thorns attached to his head, just kind of digging into his skull, he cries out, in the end, it is finished. Saying the the sacrifice for sins has been paid. Atonement is provided in me, in the cross. It is finished. And do you know what goes down as Jesus cried those words? We're told in three of the four Gospels that in that moment, the veil in the temple, separating worshipers from the holy of holies, the veil from the temple that had these trees decorated on it, representing echoing Eden, this, this veil, this curtain, it tore from top to bottom. Jesus saying, the way is now open for you to be connected with God once again. The way is open for you to come home and be with the God who made you once again. The Garden of Eden is all, is littered throughout how John tells the story of Jesus. So much so that in John chapter 19, verse 41, after Jesus dies on the cross and guys come to take his corpse down, We are told in John 19.41 that the place, as they took him to take him into a tomb and bury him, you know where that tomb was located? John 19.41, the place Jesus was buried was a garden, echoing Eden all throughout the story of Jesus. And right after that, there's this woman named Mary Magdalene who knew Jesus pretty well. She missed Jesus, and she came to this garden to... uh, bring some spices and oils to apply to his corpse. She didn't think he was going to come back to life. And so she's coming to treat the corpse of Jesus in a, in a ceremonial kind of way. But as she walked into the garden, she encounters the resurrected Jesus, but she doesn't recognize the resurrected Jesus. And in again, another stroke of spirit-inspired genius, John would write that in Mary Magdalene's mind, she thought the resurrected Jesus was a gardener a gardener in the garden there in the gospel story. And in that moment, we were being cued into one of the deepest meanings of the gospel for us. That in that moment of irony, more truth was being inserted about who Jesus is than you find in lots of other places. Not only is Jesus the gardener, Jesus is the garden. Jesus is the home we were created for. So the way we connect with our God and the way we are brought back home isn't by following a path. It is by pressing into a person, this gardener who came to bring us back into the Gardener, the garden of God, this Jesus who went to the cross, our saving grace, so that our souls may be satisfied, so that the curse of sin in our lives may be reversed. One of the effects of being loved by a selfless, sacrificial Savior is your heart cannot help but become increasingly selfless and sacrificial yourself. When you are loved by Jesus in this kind of way, the curse of sin is reversed and you become a less self centered person. And as you press into your relationship with Jesus, you become more other oriented honoring God with your life, honoring God with your obedience, honoring God with your faith, helping other people with love and service and an other orientation. Jesus went to the cross to reverse sin's curse in your life. And yes, that includes your death. Jesus stepped out of the tomb in his resurrected body saying, look, everyone who's in me, everyone who's with me, one day they're going to step out of their tomb too. I died on the cross to reverse the curse of sin. But you go one step further, Jesus not only came to die in this way, to satisfy our souls, he came to, to reverse the curse of sin. Ultimately, Jesus came to claim us and to carry us all the way home. One of the reasons why I love the Bible so much and how it drives me to trust Jesus is in its, intricate, in its intricacy and in, in the way that it tells the story of redemption. I mean, think about it. The Bible begins with a garden. And Adam and Eve are with God in that garden. The climax of the Bible, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, happens where? It happens in a garden. And when you come to the end of the Bible, where do you think the Bible ends? The Bible ends in a place that echoes Eden once again. The Bible ends in a type of garden. Let me show you Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. The Bible ending in this moment where all is made right. Where Jesus brings us all the way home. Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 through 4. Listen to what's being said and listen to what's present there. Revelation 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. This is where Jesus is bringing us. He's bringing us back to the place where we have access to the tree of life once again. Not just a long A long life, but a quality of life where we're flourishing with God as God intended us to flourish in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Bringing us back to this tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, that is all the peoples of the earth. No, No people group on the planet is excluded from this blessing. No longer will there be anything, get this, no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse has been lifted. The curse has been reversed. That's why Jesus did what he did. There will be nothing there that is accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, we're going to belong to him, and he's going to belong to us. We're going to enjoy him, and he's going to enjoy us. Verse 5 and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you remember how the Bible began with light but no sun? Do you remember when we looked at Genesis chapter 1 when we started this series and we were pointing out how weird and odd it was for there to be light but no sun? You get to the end of the story, and what do you have? Another situation where there is light but no sun. Echoing again how Jesus has come to reverse the curse of sin in the world. To bring us back to where we belong. The presence of God. And when we step into his presence, the eminence of his presence, we're not going to scream in fear. We're not going to shrink back in guilt. We're not going to wallow in condemnation. We're certainly not going to be thinking about ourselves in that way. No, we're going to be pressing into the enjoyment of our, of our gracious God who came for us to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves, to make a way for us when there was no way to be made by us. You see, as a a Christian, you are someone who's living your life in the world that is, not following a path. You are living your life in the world that is, pressing into a person a relationship with a real person who loved you enough to die for you, who loved you enough to rise from the grave for you, who loves you enough to see you through the world that is and to bring you all the way home to the world that is to come. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who's trusting this Jesus. And I hope and I pray that each and every one of you would would stop hugging imposters and press in to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Let Jesus do for you what he wants to do for you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. So if you're in this space tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've never trusted in the Savior, let me encourage you. Stop wasting your life. Stop wasting your days. Jesus wants your faith. He wants your relationship. He wants your trust. Give it to him. Give it to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we consider these truths, as we consider these images. I pray that our hearts would be warmed by what it is Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. I pray that you would Just warm our hearts over these next several moments as we continue to worship you through song and as we approach your table. Just warm our affections for what it is you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.